Hello, and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. Today, we are talking about Doll's House, the second collection of uh, Sandman. We're going to do this more or less the same way that we wrapped up Preludes and Nocturnes as well. We're going to talk about Dream's character arc. We're going to talk about you know the big story here that we get in this volume. We're going to talk about themes and motifs. We've actually got a lot there that we want to do this time. And then we're going to talk about this as a volume as well. We'll do the, the volume title, the, the volume cover. Uh, we'll look at all of the things that are in the, the physical volume that makes this up that you wouldn't have if you were only reading this as single issue comics. Uh, and then at the end, we'll do some assessing of this. We'll talk about our favorite issues, our favorite panels. We'll see where this stacks up against uh, Preludes and Nocturnes as well. Uh, it be, should be should be a lot of fun. Before we dive into all of that, though, Brent, I want to say that while I was rereading uh, Doll's House this week, it really occurred to me that we took a long, long time kind of behind the mic here to do this volume versus Preludes and Nocturnes, which uh, we did much more quickly or at a more frequent pace than our release schedule is. But this one, we actually recorded more slowly than our release schedule. And at least for me personally, a lot happened in my life while we were doing this. Uh, for one, I'm living in a different home than I was when we started the Doll's House. Uh, and that was a big deal. Uh, my wife and I decided that we were going to put down roots here. My wife got, uh, my wife Elizabeth got tenure at her job. So we decided, hey, we're staying where we live and we should uh, maybe do that. And so also we started a family. I've had a kid in the middle of us doing uh, doing this uh, this volume here, doing the, doing the Doll's House. And in addition to that, of course, too, right, we took time off. We went to, to PhilCon, which was the first time that you participated in the network's activities at PhilCon, which uh, I thought was a lot of, of fun. But you know, we took time away from doing the Doll's House to do that as well. And so, gosh, to just be here today wrapping up the Doll's House, which to me feels like something we've been doing for like a decade, <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a weird feeling. Partially just because of the uh, schedule that we've taken for releasing these once a month. Um, so... When I've reread Sandman in the past, I've gone through volumes in a day, but also we did record, you know, peek behind the curtain, a bunch of early episodes for Preludes and Nocturnes fairly quickly before we started releasing uh, any episodes at all to the world. And we've also recorded some other bits here and there between some which are included in the feed, some which are um, for, for patrons only. Yeah, we've been doing a lot of side recording here as well, I guess, while we've been doing the, the Doll's House. And uh, of course, we're going to be taking a little time away from Sandman here uh, at the end of Doll's House after this episode. But we'll talk about that at the end of what we're going to do today. And maybe we should actually get into what we are going to do today. Uh, and first thing we're going to do is just talk about Dream's character arc. I don't know, that'll probably be the thing that we do first on all of the, the wrap-up episodes, is to track the way in which this is Dream's story and what Dream's story even is and and Brent, you're going to take the lead on this. What is Dream Story here in the Doll's House? We talked in uh, our wrap up of Preludes and Nocturnes about how, in many ways, throughout that series, Dream oftentimes was not the protagonist, that he was kind of a secondary character uh, who maybe shows up as John Constantine deals with helping recover something that a, an old lover has uh, taken of his. But in this volume, in many ways, he similarly is not the protagonist. In fact, in some ways, he's almost the antagonist of Rose for the series-wide arc. But, you know, kind of talking about issue by issue, um, you know, we're left at Sound of Her Wings where he's kind of decided to be a little less mopey thanks to his non-mopey at all sister. We then uh, kind of get a flashback in a way. 
but uh, told from uh, some humans retelling stories in Tales in the Sand about when he was cruel um, and terrible towards Nada. And then we get into the doll's house proper. He's performing his duties, regaining his former footing kind of role throughout. Um, we see him um, in playing house, being direct in action, but then very dismissive of where Lita is left at the end of it. Um, so we see him still kind of being cold and distant with people. But then when he has to confront the uh, Corinthian and collectors, we see that, you know, he's changed a little bit in terms of his understanding about the damage that the dreams are causing, not just to individuals, but on a more massive scale. But also he expresses kind of disappointment at uh, Corinthian for thinking so small in terms of what a nightmare can be. And then eventually uh, he confronts Rose, who in some ways are protagonist in the doll's house, um, and he's prepared to kill her uh, until Unity kind of steps in and tells him he doesn't understand anything at all. And uh, she kind of saves the day. And then uh, in Lost Hearts, then he confronts um, Desire because he's realized that Desire has had a role in trying to mess with his affairs and try to trick him into killing a family member um, and that that has some significance. But he then also has a, a little speech that he gives Desire um, regarding the role that the Endless perform. So talking to Desire, he says, Desire, listen to me carefully. Remember this. We of the Endless are the servants of the living. We are not their masters. We exist because they know deep in their hearts that we exist. When the last living thing has left the universe, then our task will be done, and we do not manipulate them. If anything, they manipulate us. We are their toys, their dolls, if you will. And you and despair and even poor delirium should remember that. So he goes from thinking he's kind of above and outside of things and that it's not okay or, you know, being kind of cavalier in his approach to, to humans in some ways. He's concerned about the damage that um, the dreams and nightmares that are out on the world might cause. But he doesn't seem to care much what happens to individual humans. He doesn't care um, what happened to Lita. He doesn't seem to care show any care of what happened to Jed. Um, he seems quite ready to dispatch Rose. Um, and there's indications that there might be a more difficult way to deal with the vortex than he's willing to deal with. Um, I believe Gilbert makes a reference to that. Um, but then here we are at the end where he's just like, no, we don't manipulate that. So in some ways, maybe he's growing, but in other ways, he still is very distant from the idea of, the effect that he can have on individual people. And he still isn't taking responsibility necessarily for his actions on kind of the micro scale. He is on the macro scale. He cares a lot about the importance of his realm, the damage the vortex could cause. Right. I think that this speech at the end, which maybe we can just call the doll's house monologue, this is really the only place I think in the volume where we get a real sense of what Dream's emotional arc, Dream's character arc in this story is. Once we get this speech, we can read backwards the way that you are and, and see his interactions with individual human beings. And we can even think of, and I think we, we, we should especially be emphasizing here, Tales in the Sand and Men of Good Fortune, which otherwise are kind of standalone, just kind of otherwise are standalone 
stories, but they do speak to this theme or this motif of Dream interacting with individual humans and how he thinks uh, the power dynamic goes there, what the power dynamic is. And uh, that may, and, and I think that we are supposed to see here at the end that Dream is realizing that even though he has a lot of power and is something akin to a, a god, I guess, in our, in our parlance anyway, that maybe maybe that doesn't mean that he is better than people, right? That he is, in fact, maybe not so much a lord, uh, even though he talked about that very much in in this volume, that he's not so much a lord as perhaps a, a servant of, of sorts, uh, or at least a custodian, a kind of caretaker. But I do think that that's almost all that we actually get of any kind of emotional arc for Dream here. Because even though we did talk a lot in Preludes and Nocturnes about how some of these issues are about other people and Dream is only kind of a background character or a, a minor character in them, most of the issues in Preludes and Nocturnes were about Dream being an active agent, it being his story, uh, him struggling to get free, him trying to reconstitute his kingdom by uh, getting his his accoutrements back so that he can have his power, that it was Dream actively doing things. But the Doll's House is not really Dream actively doing anything, or at least the story is not from the perspective of Dream actively doing anything, both the story itself and also even the uh, standalone stories, Tales in the Sand and Men of Good Fortune, are not about Dream actively doing something. This story, right— uh, the, the the doll's house story arc is the story of the Kincaid family. It's it's picking up the thread of Unity Kincaid from Preludes and Nocturnes, and then this is really Rose's story, and also it, you know subsequent to that or in tandem with that, it is also the story of these major arcana who have escaped as well. There are characters from the dreaming in this story who who are getting point of view characters or our protagonist in the sense of characters attempting to do something. But Dream is not really a protagonist in this story at, at all. And I guess I'm kind of left here at the end of this volume wondering what is the plot of the entire Sandman saga right now, right? The plot of Preludes and Nocturnes was Dream being imprisoned, getting out of prison, and then trying to put his kingdom back in order, or get his stuff back, maybe I should say. And we then assumed that Doll's House story arc, the next thing that was going to happen was rebuild the kingdom. And that is something that is definitely happening, but it's not actually what the plot of the Doll's House is. And so once we conclude this, I'm not sure, I mean, I know because I've read it before, but thinking back to what it was like to read this for the first time, I really would have no idea where this story is going next, right? Like what is Dream going to do in the next issue? I have no no idea. It's a very, it, it's a, it is a strange way to write this story, though I think it succeeds and is marvelous. Yeah, it is a very strange way to write the story. And I, I think you're right when you bring up Men of Good Fortune. I think that issue does show us it, – it does the most kind of character work to show us not only kind of dream – but also how he changes, how his perception of humans change from being fairly dismissive and not necessarily understanding why his sister would ever want to interact with them except for in her official capacity to, by the end, really showing up because he considers Yahab his friend. But I also, uh, as we're talking about kind of dream and as, as protagonist or as actor here, um, or the lack kind of thereof of him having that role. Um, it reminds me that in men of good fortune, when it is the late 19th century, he looks a lot like Sherlock Holmes, um, uh, detective. And in some ways doll's house 
kind of his dream as the role of the detective. He kind of shows up after things have occurred and maybe, you know, <laughs> he, you know, unfurls his service revolver and, you know, takes the bad person down and, you know, deals with Bruton Glob or deals with the Corinthian. But otherwise, he, he's there after much of the damage is already done. He's not the one causing it. He's not able really to fix it. He's more just, he's almost a witness to the very end effects of it. Um, and he is there in some ways just to kind of punish or, you know, kind of wrap up loose ends even, which I mean, a narrative device would come across lazy, I think in, in anyone else's hands other than Neil Gaiman's. But I think it very much is the story of the Kincaid family. And it's also, we have the interlude of, um, the other people in Rose's house, um, and kind of the roles that all of them play. Now, obviously one of them is one of the escape dreams, but I think that doll's house wouldn't be the same without Shantao and Zelda and, um, Hal and Barbie and Ken, like, it's just, they're, they're more than just kind of fun punchlines. That is the doll's house, right? That's the, maybe not the only, I suppose. In fact, we know definitely it's not the only, right? But that is maybe the central doll's house that we see here in the story. And and maybe this is a, a good lead in to our, our themes and motifs segment as well. Because the first thing that we wanted to talk about here was doll houses, maybe broadly here, but then also the the bit that, that Gaiman had said earlier, I don't remember which episode we talked about this on, uh, but that one of his central themes was thinking about doll houses houses and women, right? Thinking about women as being put into doll houses. And I think we want to spend a little bit of time taking a look at that. And, and again, Brent, you're, and again here, Brent, you're taking the lead on that. So what, what have you noticed about doll's houses and, and women as you've gone through this again? I mean, a lot of what we see in the doll's house collection is kind of the mistreatment of women by individual or collective kind of, you know, male, particularly male or masculine characters. So we start with the prologue, uh, Tales in the Sand, in which we see Dream as being really uh, terrible uh, to to a woman. And it's a tale that's being told by one man to another man um, to help them kind of understand where their people are kind of from. But it's a tale that's about how terrible a man can be to a woman when he's blinded by desire, essentially. And then, you know, the backdrop for all of this in terms of the Kincaid family is the fact that unity was raped when she was in a coma and that in some capacity by quote unquote desire. And then, you know, Lita is, you know, stuck in uh, Jeb's head and, in some ways, it's kind of awful that she's imprisoned there somewhat by Brute and Glob. Um, however, then she is kind of treated very poorly by Dream when she was let loose. Jed is treated pretty poorly, but in some ways, he's more of a child than he is a, a man, so to speak. And when we see the dreams of the people in the house that Rose, Rose lives in, the only traditional male character in that house, um, Ken has, you know, terrible dreams that 
make him really unsympathetic uh, relative to everyone else. Everyone else we very much really appreciate and like and we worry for. Um, and those are all characters who are all um, either women or, you know, Hal, who oftentimes, you know, takes on the personification of traditional feminine roles. But I, so I think in many ways the series is, is, is kind of about, you know, women as kind of tools that are kind of played with um, and the men to varying extents have any understanding as to what they are doing, but they are treating the women as if they are just kind of malleable dolls that they can do whatever they want with. Um, and that they have also specific places that they, you know, should be, you know, and they should be comfortable with their roles, right? Lita should be comfortable with the idea that at some point dream is going to come and take her child. Like that's a terrifying and awful thing to think, but dream doesn't think a second thing of saying it as far as we can tell. He just says, you know, by the way, that, you know, baby you've been carrying, uh, I'm going to come get it sometime. Like, She's just lost her husband. Her whole world has been upended. She's in a nightgown in the remnants of a grungy, like, basement. And she's pregnant. And then there's a man telling her, I'm going to come take your baby at some point. Like, and that, that that's kind of terrible. And it, it weirdly contrasts with Dream's Doll's House monologue, which we discussed at the end of the volume, um, where... You know, here's Dream thinking that, you know, he can kind of manipulate the dolls that are the people the way that Desire seems to be want to interact. She wants to manipulate Dream himself, going going back to whatever role she may have had in the Tales in the Sand. We don't see her directly, her her kind of presence there, but in many ways, Desire as a manifestation kind of has played out there. That's a great observation there, Brent, this question of where does this business with Hippolyta's baby. And by the way, I'm just going to call her Hippolyta because I love saying Hippolyta. <laughs> so that's what I'm going to use her full name here. But the question of how does his re, how does dreams threat or promise baby, but threat to take her baby. How does that jive with this, this business at the end, right? This, this doll's house monologue where he seems to be saying, we don't lord it over humans. We are here for them, right? That we only exist in the universe because sentient beings exist in the universe, that we're just representations of, of things that they need in the universe. He does not seem to be treating Hippolyta that way for sure. And definitely not her baby. And you know, if we're thinking about where is this going to go next, there are two things that I see in the Doll's House storyline that could get picked up as as threads for the next uh, the next story arc. This is one of them, and then the other, of course, is this business with the family squabble here, the sibling squabble uh, among the endless. And both of those will almost certainly get picked up on Neil Gaiman. Doesn't doesn't uh, drop threads like that, right? He always tugs on them. And maybe that leads into the, the next thing that we wanted to talk about here, the next thematic thing, which is family, right? That we are seeing the way that family relationships are are driving the plot. And so this is a big part of the, the motifs here, right? That these uh, sibling relationships among the endless are definitely what drives the plot here, right? The whole business with Rose and being the vortex is uh, is the doing of desire. And it's the thing that desire was doing in order to 
manipulate, to harm, to to damage Dream in some way. It's, we don't leave the story being really clear about what the, the goal was there, uh, other than that we know that Desire is maybe kind of the, the trickster character in this in this story. But that really is what drives the plot. And this is, as we said, right, this is also the saga of Unity Kincaid and her granddaughter, Rose Walker. And if we want to look at it that way, right, then this is a story of this woman who was doubly victimized by the, the Endless, or Dream's imprisonment led to the sleeping sickness, which then led to her being raped or put her anyway in this position to be raped by desire. And this story, and all of that's really just backstory to the doll's house, right? This story is about unity recovering from the, the sleeping sickness because dream has escaped and wanting to unite her family before she dies, right? This is, and and really the plot, right? If, if we're thinking, what is the beat by beat of, of these episodes? This is the quest for Jed, right? This is how Unity Kincaid wants to unite her family. Part of that involves finding her missing grandson and having the financial means to equip Rose to do that. And then Rose goes and does that. And it ends with the family reunited and living in a new house together. And it ends with Rose ready to participate in the family again. And after suffering a, a number of traumas, one of them, it turns out, is actually uh, from Preludes and Nocturnes. The, the story at the, the diner, 24 hours, is something that uh, had, had affected Rose very directly. And and this is just, and I think this is just one of the many places where Preludes and Nocturnes and The Doll's House actually feel like kind of a one-two punch or like two sides of the, the same coin, right? That uh, Doll's House is actually tying up a lot of loose ends from preludes and nocturnes or or picking up threads in preludes and nocturnes anyway and and completing that story and I, I think this is definitely one of the ways that that happens and those are the big ways that we see family in this story the way that family is the thing that is driving what the story is to begin with but of course we've also got hector and hippolyta and their baby we have this beautiful scene where hippolyta is reminiscing about her life when she's stuck in this uh this micro dreaming with her dead husband and her baby who will never be born and we get a lot about her relationship with her mother we get a lot about her marriage there is of course the business with her baby we also get hobbs family dying on him in Men of Good Fortune, and even Tales in the Sand uh, really is about a grandfather's relationship with his grandson, or it's about a, uh, a young man becoming an adult, I suppose, and his grandfather being there to usher him into the community of adults. It is a story, it's, you know, the, it starts with two members of the same family doing a ritual together. Uh, and even if we're thinking of The Sound of Her Wings as the first issue in this story arc, or at least the first issue in this volume, that also is about family, right? This is a story of Dream and his sister, and how uh, hanging out with his sister for a day helps rehabilitate him after his imprisonment and the ordeal of getting his stuff back, and in particular, the ordeal of getting his ruby back. So these family relationships are everywhere. They're in every issue of this of this story well and additionally um the the folks who live in the house with rose um in a way are kind of a, a surrogate family to each other in some ways um and so while they're not connected over a huge amount of time there, there's a certain amount of closeness um certainly obviously when their dreamings breaks down and the vortex kind of swirls around them but there we have kind of a, a weird collection of kind of a, a, a found family, if you will. 
in terms of their interactions with each other, with each other. And Ken is kind of on the outs there, but you know, kind of Hal has a very maternal or paternal role within the house in some ways. Uh, Gilbert is kind of like a grandparent um, who, you know, knows a lot of things, but you know, isn't, is kind of disconnected from the younger people in the house. And, uh, Chantal and Zelda are kind of, they're even referred to as they're the spider sisters. And that's in talking to them in terms of the relationship with each other in which they're kind of like maybe sisters, if not, um, something else, but it's also in some ways their relationship to Rose too, right? Yes, absolutely. And this story arc really does show us a large variety of types of families. I mean, not just biological families versus found families, but also the myriad ways that even a biological family can can manifest itself. We certain certainly there's the dysfunction of Rose's father, right? We know that her mother and father have gotten uh, divorced and that Jed went to live with their father. And that didn't really seem to go very well. But then there was this grandfather there who was uh, uh, operated a lighthouse, which is, that sounds pretty amazing, who did do a great job of taking care of Jed. But then because he was old, he died. And Jed ends up with members of the extended family. But there are people who, although we know that there was something mystical, something numinous going on here as well. But there are people who see this family member as just money as a, a business investment, as a way to get money from the, the state for taking care of a, a foster kid, and they abuse him, right? So it's not just all good families. We're seeing bad families in this story as well. And this is one of the things that I think Gaiman is really, really a master at when he's exploring themes or exploring motifs, is looking at multiple aspects of that theme or that motif at the same time of not just striking one note or looking at one aspect of it. When he explores a theme, he really wants to explore that theme. And one of those themes also, in addition to family, is is hearts. So we, we discussed the fact that the heart that um, Rose pulls out of her own chest in the dreaming and hands to unity to return to unity, that, that part that is the vortex, um, intentionally looks the same as the fragment of glass that the grandfather shares with his grandson when telling the tale in A Tale in the Sand. But uh, hearts also kind of manifest in other ways throughout the series. Um, and in um, Highbender's Sandman Companion, uh, during an interview with Neil Gaiman, Neil mentions that you know hearts appear. He thinks that there's either a heart image or the word heart in just about every issue. I want to talk about a couple specific instances of it. Um, in addition to the chunk of glass that looks like a heart from Tales in the Sand, and again, the the heart that is pulled out um, by Rose. I also kind of want to start off by talking about the heart that is at the center of Desire's Realm. So de- at the center of Desire's Realm, which looks otherwise empty to us, um, we have the figure of Desire uh, itself um, with its chest kind of pulled open permanently and there in the heart is actually where desire lives and the fortress is referred to as fortress is, is the word that Neil uses, but also he refers to it as the threshold. And here I think threshold is meant somewhat to remind us of the point or value in which something, you know, 
happens versus not happening. Like, you know, the, the threshold for a reaction to be occurring in terms of chemistry or a physiological or psychological effects to kind of manifest is in this heart that is threshold. Now, desire's heart looks very different from the pieces of glass and what kind of Rose pulls out. It's kind of, um, it looks more organic and it's also kind of uglier in some ways. Uh, and I think that that's significant. I think that we're dealing more with kind of an platonic kind of idealized, even romantic view of a heart when we're talking about stories of love with a capital L, um, whether they've gone wrong or not as in tales in the sand, as well as kind of roses kind of, how good of a character she is. Um, and also then the love that her grandfather, grand grandmother feels for her when, um, Rose then hands the, the heart over and it's the breaking of that heart, which is the, um, kind of the, causes the vortex to, to, to die. But Glenn, were other, were there other hearts that you picked up on throughout the series before we talk about those three instances, were there other ones that struck you? Those were really the big ones that I saw as well. And frankly, when this came up, when you read this to me, when we did Lost Hearts, I was kind of surprised, right? I had not been noticing hearts as a recurring motif uh, as we were reading through the the first time. And so I was really excited to look for those as we went through the the, the second time to our reread up to this, though I did also happily assign this to you as being your principal <laughs> job. But uh, but no, those were the big ones that that I noticed. And so, I mean, I think that it also is, I kind of want to take a moment and talk about the possession of hearts, right? So desires, threshold fortress, I mean, that's desires realm, but desires, let's put desire aside. Let's ignore that one. Let's talk about the shard of glass um, that is found in the desert. And it's important in terms of kind of kicking off a story, but we're also told that there are many other pieces like it. And once the story is told, the heart is just kind of the, the glass is just kind of thrown to the side and it's left there with so many others versus at the end when Rose pulls out kind of her own heart and gives it to unity and unity then, you know, breaks it open that it means so much. And I think in some ways this is a communication about the idea that like, Hearts are fragile, precious things, but they're maybe only fragile and precious to the person whose heart it is. And so other people's hearts are things that are easy to kind of discard or ignore. And it's easier in some ways to be like dream is throughout the series, frankly, in which he is just goes about doing what he wants to do. He shows up and does things when it's convenient for him to do it. And he takes action when he feels like it, but he doesn't take more action than that. He doesn't make sure that, you know, the boy who was had the dreams, you know, residing in his head is okay. Nope. He's, He's left to his own and his own ends up then in the trunk of Corinthian's car. Like that's, that's terrible. But in some ways that's also a discussion about kind of hearts, again, fragile, very breakable things should be treated with care, but there's not really reasons why anyone else would think to treat anyone else's heart with care, which also goes back to some of the themes in um, tales in the sand and also then kind of desires role in all of this in which, you know, desire is manipulating dream and others and trying to use them like their playthings, even though um, she shouldn't as dream says in his monologue. Um, but, and it, you know, and it's, in some ways it's dreams broken heart, which is the reason why Nada is, is imprisoned in hell. Um, and 
you know, all of the bad things kind of happened to her and, and maybe to her people as well. We have been emphasizing so much in this episode, more than I anticipated we would in this episode, how much Dream does, decides not to get involved in the lives of human beings that he is actually involved in. And I, I wonder how much of this, and, and then pairing that up with the, the Doll's House monologue at the end, is it actually maybe not so much that Dream is talking about how they are servants of people, which is the way I characterized it. Is it more actually that there's like an endless prime directive that Dream is following, like a non-interference clause, a general order number one here, and that even if Dream has the ability to intervene and help Jed out, he's just not supposed to. And so he's going to follow this rule to the letter of the law. I mean, is is he just following the prime directive? I mean, I think he is. Um, and I think we've seen this before where uh, there are sets of rules, and we'll see this again. Uh, spoilers. Um, there are sets of rules that do apply to the Endless. Dream puts a high value on them, maybe even more so than other members of his family. Certainly than Desirous appears to be here um, in terms of like, we should X, we should not do Y. Um, and, you know, it, he performs his job in a very kind of perfunctory way where he's just focused on this is my job and even when in men and good fortune when he first is with death he doesn't understand why she would take a day off each year and go and interact with you know people when not on the job and that's his idea of like you know, his desire to not interact with people it's kind of a disconnect he has in which people are kind of his business and so he interacts with them to the extent he needs to to meet requirements but yeah, there's the prime directive and probably the secondary directive and the tertiary directive. He just doesn't think beyond even what he's allowed to do beyond that. There are certain things that he will do, and then he doesn't see necessarily reasons to move beyond that, um, particularly not to help individual people. Again, he seems to recognize the damage that can occur if the vortex gets out of control and what it might mean to collectively to people. And when we, we get a sense of him worrying about you know, the effect that the Corinthian can have collectively on kind of the society and culture that he's interacting with, but not the effect that things could have on individuals. And he does show at the end of Collectors, he kind of lifts the veil from the eyes of the serial killers in which they are kind of left knowing that their stories are kind of all nonsense and terrible. And they're kind of left to confront themselves because you know, the their illusions are shattered, but he doesn't go back and, you know, bring any restitution to the victims of those people or those people's families. Um, since the, you know, the victims are all dead. Like he, there's no, he doesn't show up to someone's grave and like leave a flower on it or anything. And, um, there's nothing to be said for the boys that we see tied up, likely dead with their eyeballs cut out from Corinthian in earlier issues. You know, we, we see that Jed is okay, but that's not necessarily because of dreams actions. It's Gilbert's the one who emerges with Jed, right? Right. Yeah. That's a great observation. His, his deal is that he stops interference from the, the dreaming in the, the waking world, but only active ongoing interference. He doesn't correct or offer right any kind of restitution for 
interference in the past and in in the past even meaning you know a minute ago or at least maybe a day ago i suppose that's a and that's really great i i hadn't thought about that hadn't really noticed that before that this is a really extreme version of of captain picard here uh that he's definitely not doing a kind of quantum leap thing right he's certainly not going to go set set right what once went wrong or something like right. that right he's only he's only following the letter of the law of this kind of non-interference clause and, and he also isn't prepared to make sacrifices right unity makes the sacrifice of saving rose's life and also saving everyone in the process unity is the one again in that in that issue she is the hero right um she is the one who affirmatively takes it upon herself to sacrifice herself for everyone. Um, and she's not, you know, playing into martyr syndromes about, you know, woe is me about it. She's, she's, she does so fairly kind of happily knowing that where she is in life is, is at a place where, you know, life has gotten kind of hard for her at this point. Um, she is old and, um, you know, her life is what it is. Unfortunately, you know, she she didn't have much of one because she was asleep through most of it. Um, but this is something that she affirmatively is able to do. And so she proudly steps up and takes responsibility to save everything, right? While Dream was just going to be like, nope, uh, the shortcut is uh, Vortex. Need to destroy the Vortex. Sorry about that. Okay, destroy Vortex. And, you know, he's going through his checklist and... That's not where things are at. But in some ways, you know, we know, we never see – we see in Tales of the Sand Dream thinking he's in love with Nada um, and then being angry at her because of his being rebuffed. But we don't actually see a manifestation at any point of what it looks like inside of Dream, uh, either in his, his head or his, his heart. We don't see a manifestation of Dream's heart. We see a manifestation of – kind of the lost hearts of people, but not of, of him. We talked a lot about in that episode when we did it, uh, we talked a lot about, you know, how true the events that we see on the page are, right? Because this is a story that uh, two human beings or really, I guess one human being is telling to another human being, you know, literally uh, more than 10,000 years after these events, after the events that are being narrated. And so there are all sorts of questions about how we should use that information here when we're thinking about the, the, the themes, or certainly maybe when we're thinking about Dream's character arc anyway. Well, this observation that you've made here and really thinking about all of this as kind of a prime directive has has maybe turned me around on the answer I was going to give for the, the question that we want to conclude our themes and motifs conversation with, which is, hey, does the sound of her wings belong in the doll's house? Or, or maybe does it fit better in the doll's house as a prologue? Or does it fit better in preludes and nocturnes as a coda? Uh, because in the volumes that we're reading, it's it's in both of them in, in these roles. So which do you think, Brent? Well, and a little bit of backdrop on why it's in both. Um, so the Doll's House was the first collection printed for Sandman. Preludes and Nocturnes, the first seven issues, were later collected after the success of Doll's House um, was, you know, printed. And then in later iterations, when they reprinted the whole series of graphic novels, um, they uh, took sound of her wings out of the doll's house collection. So 
I think in some ways, Son of Our Wings doesn't have anything to do. It has something to do with the larger plot of Sandman in terms of the 75 issue arc. It does not really belong in this collection. It's not part of a doll's house, which is the reason why, you know, the doll's house prologue is Tales in the Sand. And that kind of tells the full arc. However, if you just jumped into Sandman, um, and this was the first time you were picking up anything, uh, I think you need not only kind of the brief synopsis that we'll talk about a little bit that, that Neil writes as to what's gone before, but also you need to have some kind of sympathy understanding to some extent as to who dream is. Um, and if you just jumped in the tail in the sand, you'd be like, I don't, this comic's called Sandman and I don't, there's not a Sandman in this comic. It's, it's two people in the desert telling a tale and I don't understand. <laughs> and then even <laughs> the next issue, like he, he, he plays such a, again, he's, he's in many ways, not the protagonist in almost any of these issues. He is a, you know, to me, he's kind of the detective who wanders in at the end and says, no, it's clear to me that you did it, which the audience already saw earlier when, you know, this is, I, I'm having a few months ago seen Knives Out. I'm thinking about uh, Daniel Craig <laughs> now playing Dream and coming in with a really bad accent and being like, you know, and I can't do it. But um, <laughs> a nice kind of, you know, faux kind of southern drawl kind of thing going on. But um, I mean, I don't think that uh, Sound of Her Wings plays in terms of what the doll's house is about. I do think that Sound of Her Wings is an important issue to read before you read the issue, the issues of doll's house though. Cause I think you need to like, sympathize a little bit with who dream is also because it's always a good excuse to read that issue and see how great death is. But I mean, what are your thoughts in terms of sound of her wings and where it fits? Well, those are my thoughts. Exactly. Uh, I think it works much better as a, a coda because it shows dream rehabilitating and, and maybe even growing from the experiences of preludes and nocturnes, right? That's what that issue is for. But I also think that you're completely right that in terms of, of, of its purpose in this volume, not necessarily this story arc, but its purpose in this volume is in case this is someone's first reading of The Sandman, because it, it certainly could have been and probably actually was for a lot of people as these issues were were coming out, right? This was one of the real early instances of the, the, the idea of binding together a series of individual comics and selling them as a, a hardcover book to uh, a slightly different audience, in fact, than people who necessarily went to, to comic book shops every week to, to pick up their subscriptions or browse around for new titles and so on. And so this has to serve those readers, readers for whom this is going to be their first experience with the, the Sandman. And maybe we should just jump right into talking about the volume, talking about this as a material object and how it would affect your reading of this story. And so this is one of those aspects. And, and the other one you just brought up too, Brent, is that there is a synopsis here, like a four or five five-page synopsis written by Neil Gaiman, a synopsis of Preludes and Nocturnes. What did you think of that? Did you find Gaiman emphasizing aspects of Preludes and Nocturnes that uh, you would have emphasized differently or treated differently? No, I mean, I think he does a really good job with kind of an economy of space there, <laughs> which <laughs> just, it's very kind of like, and he does this and he does that, but it's told in a very... It's a really great kind of elevator pitch for the story of Sandman. In some ways, like if you had to explain to someone who didn't know what Sandman was, like, well, what happens particularly in the first volume? 
you'd be like, okay, if you've got three minutes, this is not only how I'm going to summarize it, but exactly the words I will use. Cause it, it kind of works in some ways like a fun short story about what's going on. Um, but it also then focuses very much on like dream did this and dream did that, but it's, um, I mean, I, I guess kind of emphasizing starting with kind of Burgess's point of view is, is, is a different way to approach it though. But I mean, w- what were your kind of thoughts on that? Well, I was really surprised to find it in there. I'd forgotten it was there. And I actually, I'm not really sure I'd ever read it before, but I did think it was a lot of fun. It really, you know, it was a weird thing to read a, a synopsis of the Sandman as if it's kind of the the treatment for a, a film, right? I mean, which is always a weird thing to do, to go read the, the novelization of a, a movie, a thing I've done, I don't know, a handful of times. I mean, I'm a big Star Trek fan, so I've done it a few times, right? And that's kind of what this felt like to me. And it was really interesting to, and it was really interesting to encounter that. And I, I just don't know that we get this sort of thing in any of the other volumes or that Gaiman has written a synopsis of the Sandman in its entirety, right? Like a a sort of pro synopsis of the entire saga. But I would love to have something like that. But it did get me really excited about other adaptations of the Sandman, right? The TV show, which I'll be real eager to check out. And then also the audio books as well, which I haven't checked out yet. Well, we've got a we've got a lot of other things on the list here to talk about this in terms of the the volume, and one of them, of course, is the volume title. But uh, we already kind of covered that in the themes we talked about a doll's house as a theme. Uh, but next on the list is the cover. So, Brent, what do you make of the doll's house cover? And I've got a couple different covers in front of me. So one is the thirtieth um, anniversary reprinting, um, which I've got uh, on my Kindle, and the other is the one that is on mine. I think your trade, and I'll start with that one. So um, this is kind of a face in a house with some arms, and you know, it's it's wearing some kind of a you know kind of quilted top with buttons. Um, and there's kind of lots of things in some ways, maybe disintegrating around it, maybe on fire. There's kind of some evocative imagery on the sides where there's a lot more kind of orange coming through. Um, but kind of the sky above looks I mean, kind of like a sky above, but it also reminds me a lot of the colorization of when the vortex kicks off and you see kind of this swirling color. But it feels kind of comforting in a way, but also a little offsetting. Um, But then the 30th anniversary cover um, has uh, Sandman with a number of figures kind of as as dolls, as marionettes, in which he has a bunch of strings. um, And a lot of them are broken and on the ground. And he's kind of staring down at them. And... um, it's a very different kind of take because it's clearly Sandman on the cover of the 30th anniversary edition. Um, and we have a bunch of cut threads. Um, I think that's supposed to be Rose. I'm not entirely sure who all of the other dolls are supposed to be though. Um, but there's no reference to there being a, a doll's house. Like there's dolls in it, but there's not the house. And I kind of like the original cover in some ways because of the kind of great, um, combination of colors going on, but also because we do see dolls houses throughout all of these panels, whether we're, um, zooming to the exterior of the house that Rose lives in, um, with Hal and the sisters and, and Barbie and Ken and Gilbert, or when we see the, 
actual doll's house in Unity's room where there is a little dream in the window that I still don't know what that's about. But also, in some ways, Dream's Palace is kind of a, a house, which we see on the back of the last issue. Um, I mean, on the, the cover of the last issue, um, issue number 16, in which, you know, a behind Dream into the side is kind of what looks like bits of a cathedral, um, but also reminds us of the archway of his throne room as depicted back in issue two of the series um, in uh, of this collection. So, I mean, wh- what do you think of the, the covers? And there might even be a third, or f- I'm sure there is a third or fourth cover I'm not thinking of, but... Well, I, yeah, I actually have, so I actually have the hardcover here, which I didn't realize that you did not have the hardcover in front of you. Although I think that that's going to be what happens as we go. I think that there are going to be very few times that we both have the hardcover or both have the, the paperback, and that'll be kind of fun. So I didn't realize that there was a different cover on the, the trade, on the paperback. The cover for the hardcover edition that I have is actually mostly white space with then just the, the, the title and the create names of the creative team on it and very little of an image. There is um, about a third of a doll's face on here. And then the biggest image that actually is on here is a uh, old fashioned uh, keyhole. And and that's really all that we get unless you open up the the dust jacket flap and then you get some of those images uh, spread out. The the doll's face is spread out a little bit, but it is mostly actually keyholes are the images uh, that are on the cover and the the back cover and then the flaps of the uh, the dust jacket here which is very different from what is what is on the others yeah no i'm seeing it now yeah it is very different um there's kind of a face peering over the keyhole or in in the in the corner in the top right yeah that's right and i i think if i had to pick one of these three and let's just say that i do i like yours the best i like the the dave mckean cover on the paperback version yeah i mean i like it too there's just a lot of fun going on in terms of the colors um and um again the mixed media where there's clearly real fabric that he's used in the photo along with some other stuff that it's probably slightly painted like aluminum foil or maybe pieces of glass it's it's really hard to tell but there's there's some kind of fun mixed media stuff going on for uh, this and in terms of uh, i'll note this um in terms of hardcover and softcover so in addition to doll's house being the first collection that was done of sandman comics and sold um seasons of mist was actually the first hardcover volume ever produced of a sandman um comic so initially the trades were just paperback and then later the hardcover editions came out um for the ones that did not have hardcovers and i think at that time they re-released also um the other ones there, there's <laughs> if you want to be a sandman collector um dc comics is quite happy to take your money uh over and over and over and over again into perpetuity. Um, and you know, in some ways good for them for doing so. Cause, um, I don't think you're really missing out. Uh, if you don't get these things, certainly with the internet, um, I have now pulled up all of the covers so I can look at the various ones. Um, and I, I think the first volume I maybe the first time I actually read doll's house, I think is, uh, from our, uh, Dennis Grove public library edition, which I believe was, the face that has a bird as one eye. Are you seeing this one too? With the, yes. Yeah. Yeah. With a great kind of prismatic swirl, which is probably the vortex going on off of the other eye. 
And I, I think in some ways, actually, I might even prefer that cover the most just because of the kind of differences in color. Um, also, that clearly I can tell who's on the cover, that it's Sandman. And that bird appears – It doesn't. it's not a raven. It's not Matthew. Um, it appears to be the bird that is um, on the cover of – um, tales in the sand. And that is the bird that, uh, likely, um, communicates to, uh, Nato, like how to find, uh, the, the being that she had seen outside her window. Right. It's the, the weaver bird is, is, uh, what that is. Yeah. Well, I think, right. Well, if, uh, if listeners are feeling like they want to track down posters of, uh, doll's house covers and send them to us, uh, <laughs> I guess we've staked out our corners there. Well, let's talk about some other features of the, the volume. So just like in preludes and nocturnes, uh, this volume gets a pair of epigraphs, one from ancient literature, uh, another from the book that we're about to, to read, uh, and let's just, uh, read them, I guess. So the, the first epigraph, the, the ancient literature epigraph here is uh it goes like this dreams and visions are infused into men for their advantage and instruction and this comes from a, a dream manual from the the second century ad called the onirocritica which is uh, written in greek by uh, a guy named uh, artemidorus of of daldus and it's just a, a guide it's a manual for how to interpret dreams right but this idea that dreams are given to people for their advantage and their instruction and it just goes through all the possible symbols and gives meanings for them so that you can figure out what guidance you're getting from the the cosmos or what guidance you're getting from the gods and make the the correct uh decisions and then the excerpt and then the quotation that we get from the book that we're about to read is dreams are weird and stupid and they scare me uh this is something that rose walker says at the the very end this is from lost hearts uh, and obviously these are contrasting notions of what dreams are right either they are significant and portentous and meant to help us or they're stupid right so uh so which is it i think is the question that is being offered to us as we are opening up this volume and, and getting into the story i mean i think they're they're both things and they're nothing um in some ways they're just kind of <laughs> nonsense um i think for rose that they are weird particularly when she was encountering other people's dreams because when the when the dream walls were breaking down and she was seeing the dreams of the other people in the house like my own dreams are kind of confusing at the best of times so i can't imagine actually not just hearing someone describe their dreams but visually seeing and experiencing those dreams. I mean, that has to be weird and also come across sometimes as, as stupid, but also would be terrifying. Also Rose, you know, has reasons to kind of be terrified of dream himself uh, by the end of the volume in which uh, while she seems to be spared, you know, it, he was fully prepared to kill her, but Artemidorus, is that it? Artemidorus? Um, uh, thing is, uh, I think it's the way that dream himself would like to view his role in which he is there to provide instruction. Um, and it, and he provides a service to mortals versus kind of, you know, Rose's encounter of just like, you know, and as I'm talking and thinking about it, it could be that that's kind of the conflicting bits of Rose's view of things versus dreams view of things. View, dreams mm. view is I have a function. I perform a function. That's a valuable function. Functions are good. <laughs> <laughs> and Rose has the view of like, this is stupid and weird and scary. <laughs> Well, I think this is a great question, or there's a great question implicit here, right? Which is, why is dream one of the endless? Or 
if we're thinking of the endless as representing indispensable functions or at least fundamental aspects of the experience of sentient beings, part of the kind of makeup of the whole cosmos, why are dreams included here? I don't think we're equipped to answer that question just yet, but it's definitely a question that we're going to take up, I don't know, maybe in the whole uh, saga wrap-up, right? When we are all the way done with the the Sandman, we might have to revisit that question, might look at this again, but it's really interesting that we're being invited to think about it here. Well, and in some ways, you know, dream, not only do we have the actual dream lines and the fact of when you're asleep and this is what you experience, but also we're, we're told even back in Prelude's and Nocturnes in some ways that he is the king of stories. And so it's the idea of fictions, right? Um, and we'll, in the next volume, get into some discussion about like truth versus fact, but the idea of the importance of fictional narratives to people. And when we start with Tales in the Sand, it's the importance of this tale that you hear as you become a man in this particular tribe. Um, and the story itself has significance, and that's the reason why it is retold. Um, and it's not fully explained as to exactly, you know, what lessons you're supposed to draw from it. Um, but there are some lessons that, you know, are clearly being passed on through a fictional story versus just setting down a number of, you know, principles and precepts of like, okay, so here's what you do and don't do. And so the importance of fictional storytelling as a way of experiencing things, um, it's ever present. Um, you know, and it's, you'll never find people who are writers of fiction, downplaying the importance of writing fiction. It's kind of like movies about Hollywood, which are by people in Hollywood. Like it'll be the most important thing in the world. Right. So similarly, (laughs) you know, Neil Gaiman and you know, the, all the artists and uh, colorists and editors and letters that join him, like they are telling fictional stories. They are not going to downplay the importance of fictional stories. And we, as our own sometimes teller of fictional stories will also not want to minimize that. So I think that somewhat that's at play, but um, Rose has a very, in some ways direct and kind of utilitarian way of looking at it in a little bit, which is just like, this is my reality. This is what I am dealing with. And it's stupid to spend time on fanciful things. I just want to get my brother back kind of no nonsense in some ways kind of approach to things, which is funny when you look at her with till the end of the volume, she's got her dyed hair and she comes across like she's, you know, only kind of involved and paying attention to stuff. But it's like, no, she in many ways is the more serious of the characters relative to dream, I think. I agree. And, and, and we actually see her telling this story. I mean, I'm not necessarily going to uh, die on the hill of, I think that she's the author of the story we've been reading. That's not what I mean. But we know for sure that she has been internalizing what's happened to her by writing about it in her diary, in her journal, right? So even though she says dreams are, are stupid, uh, she definitely thinks that story matters, right? That turning her life into a narrative in order to make sense of it is part of her healing process, right? And, you know, I guess if we think of sleep as restorative as something that we need as as bodies uh, to for the purposes of restoring ourselves every 24 hours and thinking of dreams maybe as something that is is psychologically useful in that too and if thinking of dreams as something that is psychologically useful for that too and how we order and organize the contents of our mind i mean we see her doing that in the the waking world so she certainly does think that that is a a valuable thing to do and uh you know 
I agree with Neil Gaiman on this. I do think stories are important. In fact, I think stories are uh, one of the the key things that that make humans human, that differentiate us from other types of life forms. Well, we've got uh, we've got a few more things to do here in talking about the the volume, uh, and that is to look at the the introduction and the the afterword that we get here, and uh, something that came up on our forum and. Um, extremely grateful to uh, listeners who come over to the the forum and our subreddit and offer insights and, and comments. But something that came up on our forum was uh, something that we didn't really talk about in the Preludes and Nocturnes wrap-up that we probably ought to have, uh, which is to think about the Sandman as a horror comic. That uh, something that Gaiman wrote in that afterward that we didn't really take up is that he was thinking of each issue of the Sandman as a different subgenre of horror. Uh, and that, of course, the publication history of The Sandman is that it was marketed as a horror comic, though that is not really how you and I experienced it, right? We came late to this party. We were halfway through the run of Sandman before we started reading it. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, or hinted at earlier, but we didn't even read it in order, right? At least the, the first time we had to go back and read these earlier issues later. And for us, I think by the time we got to it, this was clearly a type of fantasy story that we went to this as, uh, you know, something that we might label urban fantasy, maybe, and not as a horror comic. But that was how it was marketed. That was how it was conceived. And I, I think that we see that here as well. Yeah. I mean, I think there are a lot, and particularly in the covers, there's a lot of horror imagery, but here, you know, we have serial killers. We have um, a little boy being abused in a basement. Um, we have nightmares residing inside that boy's head. I mean, these are, there's a lot of horror here. Um, and as we came to it later in the series and we kind of approached it more terms of uh, fantastic realism. Right. And so I think that this very much kind of continues some of the horror kind of themes of preludes and nocturnes, but it starts branching into more of a wide ranging story. And it's not just let me experiment with different approaches to or motifs of horror, the way that preludes and nocturnes is. This was something that was on my mind as we were doing the the, the doll's house because we already had these these comments before we got started on this here, and it really struck me that the doll's house is, as you say, still very much taken up with some of the subgenres of horror and depicting itself or billing itself as a type of horror comic. But we this is really also where we're seeing it branch into to fantasy, and I think that we get that with uh, Tales in the Sand, which is a really a kind of a, a fairy tale story almost, or, or folk tale maybe is the, the better way to think of that. And uh, Men of Good Fortune as as well, right? It's a story of a, a, a man who uh, gets to live forever, and not done as a, a type of horror story, right? Definitely done as a type of of urban fantasy story, and and we see that in the, the dreams as well, right? I'm thinking of like Barbie's dream in particular is this this beautiful fantasy story, and it really so is is Jed's uh, dream world, the dream world that that Brute and Glob build as well, and and of course we get G.K. Chesterton walking around in the the world, right? That's not something out of a horror comic. That's something out of a out of a fantasy story for sure. So I think this is where we see Neil Gaiman making that. Uh, transition, if transition is even really the best way to think about that. But one of the things that is going on here in this volume in terms of this being a horror comic is that the person who writes the introduction, the person they got to write the introduction is the horror writer Clive Barker. Uh, And Brent, what's your experience with Clive Barker? 
So I know Clyde Barker from short stories of his I've read and also, you know, uh, films that have been produced based on that. And I, I, I think of him as a lot more horror in the kind of 80s theme of horror where it's kind of gruesome and visceral and a lot of body horror kind of imagery. And it is horror. It's not necessarily kind of my favorite type of horror. I think I prefer a little more psychological horror and less kind of um, not that he's just gross out humor or horror in the way that um, later uh, imagery would give us, but it kind of lends itself towards kind of that done very well, I guess. It would. <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah, that's been my experience with Clive Barker as well. I mean, I think that's definitely the way to characterize him, right? He is not Edgar Allan Poe or H.P. Lovecraft, right? right? He is he is body horror for sure, and you know, and he's here to give horror writer cred to Sandman, right? For people who, uh, as this is being marketed to horror fans, and if you're a horror fan, if you're a fan of Clive Barker, then that might get you to at least take this off the shelf and browse at it and then, you know, potentially decide to to buy it, right? But it did not strike me as the right person to do the introduction here. And, and, and frankly, I'll say, I didn't like his introduction. He doesn't really seem to know or care about the material. Uh, was that your sense of it? Or am, I being, or am I being totally uncharitable here? No, I mean, I think that that's fair. It's not really about the material so much as just that, you know, there are two approaches to horror. And one is there's an invasive alien kind of presence in some kind. And that is the thing that causes... Um, you know, frustrations for the protagonists in terms of there is something alien that needs to be expelled um, or otherwise, you know, lived with, or it doesn't expel. It's just, you know, the way that Clive Barker would write horror in terms of sometimes things are not resolved in a way that would be satisfying if you want the good guys to win. Right. Um, and then he contrasts that a little bit with Neil Gaiman's approach, which is just like, no, no, the whole world is weird and strange. Um, and so it's not just, there is one thing that is out of sorts, but everything is not quite as, as you view them. And I think that, I think that his introduction is a very good introduction in terms of thinking about kind of the inundated magical realism that, you know, Neil Gaiman is prov- providing us in terms of a total world build, as opposed to focusing on just a specific, there is one point of departure and have everything affected from that. And so, you know, he speaks well in terms of Neil's w- world building, but he doesn't really talk at all about the characters or the plot um, or how he is affected by reading it other than just to appreciate Neil's reading. And um, I will note that um, in later editions, at least to the Kindle version, I have the 30th edition. Um, this introduction does not appear. Um, so I don't know if it's because they just decided to cut it and um, they've replaced it with a different one, or if it was, if there were some residuals in some way that um, DC decided that they didn't want to keep paying Clyde Barker for writing that piece. Um, I think in the context of the early nineties and still somewhat marketing something as a horror comic, having a forward by Clive Barker will bring in people who maybe would not be paying attention to it, particularly those who are um, less focused on thinking that DC comics is where they will get their good horror, you know, fair in the early nineties versus either, you know, 
the independent presses, non-DC, non-Marvel stuff, uh, or even not thinking about comics at all. So it, it probably – Introduction by Clive Barker probably stands up real well on a bookshelf at a bookstore um, at you know Anderson's bookstore, for instance. Um, but it probably doesn't do you any – good in terms of folks who are already in a comic shop and like looking at a volume unless unless you know they're not primarily comics people i think and there's a whole different marketing scheme for that right and of course that was the marketing scheme that that worked for us i mean clive barker i I don't really like clive barker that much as we've we've already said that we prefer a different style of of horror writing i don't know that we'll ever cover a clive barker story on elder sign though that might actually be fun to do Uh, but i mean you couldn't have gotten a bigger name well maybe you could have i guess gotten stephen king or dean koontz i suppose but but clive barker certainly was at least the third biggest name in horror in the early 1990s so i mean that's a pretty big grab and uh you know i don't know how much of this, you know, and I don't know how much of the success of uh, doing volumes this way we should attribute to, you know, having Clive Barker's name here, but that's a pretty big grab here. In the 30th edition reprint, the um, introduction instead is provided by Kelly Sue DeConnick. And Kelly Sue DeConnick um, is a fantastic writer of comic books. And so she very much in her introduction, um, and I'll find a way of getting a copy of that to you um, to read later, Glenn. Um, but she talks about the story and she talks about how when DC was going about review, uh, you know, republishing these, they've wanted to to find people to do introductions for each volume. Um, they asked her what she'd want to do. She didn't get her first choice. This was not her first choice. Um, but as she read it, she realized how great it actually was. And particularly she leaves off by mentioning, uh, and I'm going to go ahead and, and read this quote, revisiting those new mother years in the warped reflection of these pages was for me, gentle reader, like a waking dream. The first time I read this book, hell, the second time and the third, I was not a mother. I had not yet experienced that period when, like Lita, I lived in a strange dream state, my entire identity at the service of another. I had not yet wrestled with competing love and resentment, purpose and emptiness. I am not suggesting these battles are universal to mothers, but they were mine and they were real and they were terrifying. That period changed me, forced me to grow. It left marks. And so she very much kind of identifies with the things that Lita is experiencing and also the terror then that Lita is kind of left with as well as the, you know, anger and defensiveness that she appropriately has when Dream leaves her and says, you know, I'm going to come back. Um, and we'll see some of this crop up later in the series. But uh, I I like Kelly Sudeconic's, um introduction because it starts by talking about how great a job Neil does in terms of making use of the minimal number of pages that are in comics. Um, and, but then it kind of ends with this nice little bit that is actually about the story, um, without really giving anything away. Um, and I really appreciate that. And particularly, you know, I, I, I'm not ever going to have a way to fully understand what it's like, you know, you and I to, to be a mother, right? We, we know people who are mothers. Um, you're married to someone who is a mother, but we, <laughs> We're not going to fully understand that, but she points out the kind of the way that 
you read this differently when you read it at different points in your life, which I think is true that even though I don't have the experience of reading this as a mother now when I wasn't before, I have an understanding of kind of Doll's House differently now based on my life experiences, let alone knowing where the whole series goes, but just my life experiences in ways that I don't know that I appreciated when I read it when I was a teenager. I didn't even get a chance to read this introduction, but even just this, this sounds like a much better introduction than the one that Clive Barker wrote because it is engaging with the material. And and maybe that just tells us something about the purpose of introductions, right? That when Clive Barker wrote his introduction, the purpose was to convince a browser in the store to buy the book. But that is not what this new 30th anniversary introduction is doing. It's engaging with the material, reflecting on it. It's it's offering something extra to readers. And, and that's the type of introduction that I like. And that's the type of introduction that I remember most of the later volumes actually getting when we we get to the introductions by Gene Wolfe, for example. And I'm looking forward to engaging more with those. And and I guess another note here, though, right, is that one of the things that has happened for us in a kind of meta level is thinking about how we do the podcast and what the podcast is. When we started, it was just, hey, let's do this issue by issue. We'll read the issues and we'll talk about them. But we didn't really think very much about where we were getting them from and what ancillary material, what supporting material we wanted to use. You happen to have a lot of that and you still you've been using that. And actually, that's been a really great way to do the show. But I just had what I had. You have since then gifted me the uh, the Absolute Editions, which has then been great because we've been able to talk about the differences between the original editions and then the Absolute Editions with the, the recolorization. And that's been really awesome. Uh, but I didn't realize that, of course, there were going to be different introductions to some of the later editions of these volumes. I didn't think of the Sandman. I wasn't approaching it as a, a collector. So I guess that... Uh, uh, Next time, when we do our next wrap-up episode, <laughs> we'll have done a little more homework on this. We'll have both read all of the introductions, I suppose. We'll find a way to, to do that and really uh, uh, and really talk about them. And even though we didn't do that for this episode, this episode is already, and we're not done with it, already running significantly longer than the Preludes and Nocturnes wrap-up we did. So uh, I don't know. Those might end up being two-part episodes by the time we're getting to uh, uh, Season of Mists and, and Brief Lives and the, the kindly ones. But uh, but thinking about that, I guess, let's let's move on to the, the really the, the last stage of of our outline here, which is the assessment stage, where uh, uh, we just want to talk about how we responded to this story and what we liked and didn't like. So uh, let's start with uh, with favorite issues. And, and I will let you go first, Brent. Uh, what was your favorite issue in The Doll's House? You know, there were a lot of really good issues. And I'm not going to say what my runners-up were, because um, I don't want to steal your thunder, because um, <laughs> I think there's a good chance you picked my top runner-up. But... Um, there's a lot of standard issues in this, um, and it, I think that there's a lot to like about all of them. So it was pretty close, but I have to go with the collectors, and the collectors kind of cheats in some ways because it's a little longer than some of the other issues, <laughs> but just so much happens. And you and I talked about when we were reading this that you know we both recalled the events of collectors happening across two issues, not just one. And so the amount of ground that is covered um, – uh, it is great. And it, there's some great horror comic stuff in there. I mean, this is a convention of serial killers. Um, there's some terrible things. There's the, you know, sexual assault um, that uh, Funland begins. So there's a lot of terrible things that happen in it. But there's also a lot of humor. And I really like that. I like the the, the panels um, in which 
I mean, the panels of panels, the, <laughs> the convention <laughs> panels in which, um, you know, people are arguing with each other, the religious, the religion and serial killing panel, the women in serial killing panel. Um, there's, there's just a lot of, you know, quick little funny bits there that I think, um, they don't undercut the story too much. You're not made to sympathize with these people at all. There are monsters, they are terrible. Um, but it does let you kind of enjoy a little bit of dark humor about purely fictional content, but also then a lot of the plot and narrative moves forward. You know, by the end of it, we've seen the Corinthian finally confronted by dream and, you know, dealt with quite abruptly. We have a a monologue, which isn't as good as the monologue that dream gives later in the volume to desire, but you know, he does express his disappointment in kind of the most awful way. um, If you're the Corinthian to the Corinthian, in terms of, you know, I, I'm not mad. I'm disappointed. Um, <laughs> kind of way. Um, so I really like the collectors. I just, um, it spoiler. It does not contain my favorite panel, which we'll talk about later. Um, nor is it my favorite cover. But uh, I think as an issue as a whole, just so much happens in it, and I like the humor, and I like kind of the still elements of horror and moving things forward. Unfortunately you know, Rose is not able to be as much of a instigator and and have as much agency as, as you'd like here. You know, she's, she is for this issue. She is mainly there to be the victim or, you know, of Funland at one point, um, which is unfortunate, but, uh, I still think collectors is my, is my top issue, but what was your favorite issue of, uh, doll's house club? Well, I'll say first that collectors is, without a doubt, the best issue in the Doll's House. And it is probably the best issue of Sandman up to this point. I mean, it's uh, strong themes. I I really particularly love all the theological stuff that is going on in there. Uh, I love the way that it engages with the importance of stories and storytelling with the the story of uh, Red Riding Hood in there. It's got great characters. It is also this extra length issue, which maybe is a little unfair. It's maybe a little bit like saying that the musical episode of Buffy is the best episode of Buffy. No, it is the best episode of Buffy, of course. Uh, But also it's narratively important for the Doll's House arc. But all of that said, it is not my favorite issue. It's not an issue that I'm going to pick up and read just because I'm sitting around feeling like reading some Sandman. For me, that is going to be Men of Good Fortune. And so that is my pick here for favorite issue. And, And what I like about Men of Good Fortune is that it is a largely self-contained short story. And I think that this is where Gaiman shines, right? He's coming at Dream indirectly here, and he's just giving us a a self-contained, standalone, short story. And I love Gaiman's short fiction more than I like his long fiction. Uh, I think that if I were to you know, set aside the Sandman and to pick my 10 favorite prose pieces of his, I think only one thing on that list would actually be a novel. The rest of it would be short stories, novelettes, novellas. And really, I think even within the Sandman, I do tend to gravitate towards these isolated short stories more. Uh, the other thing that's going on here, of course, though, right, is that it starts in the Middle Ages. I'm a medievalist. Uh, it is telling us the history of both England and literature, and really, we should say English literature, in this short story through the life of Hobb, century by century, right? 89 through to 89. And I just love that. Uh, And I will say, though, that I know that I said when we covered it that Tales in the Sand was my favorite issue up to that point. But having gone back and, and read both volumes again in order to prepare for this episode, I don't think that was even true, actually, at that point. I really loved Tales at the Sand, and I was really high on it when we covered it. But revisiting it again and and ranking my favorite issues so far as I went, I would actually probably go with 
A Hope in Hell and Sleep of the Just from Preludes and Nocturnes over Men of Good Fortune and Tales in the Sand. And I guess that would probably be my top four issues right now. So even though I did love Men of Good Fortune, I I still actually don't think it was my favorite issue so far. Uh, Last time we did this in Preludes and Nocturnes, Brent, you had picked uh, uh, The Sound of Her Wings as your favorite issue. And I, I wonder, has Collectors replaced it? Uh, it has not. And part of the reason it has not is just because Dream is more present in Sound of Her Wings. It's more uh-huh. a comic of Sandman about Sandman. Also, the character of Death is so great. Um, and unfortunately, other than her brief appearance in Men of Good Fortune, she doesn't make an appearance, um, at least not um, on in panel uh, in any of the issues. Um, there has been some speculation that Perhaps the reason why Unity knows what to do with the heart um, is because she is close enough to death that death tells her what she needs to do, uh, which is an interesting kind of what I want to say headcanon uh, going on with some readers with that. Um, And I think that that might be a valid read. But anyways, uh, I think that Sound of Her Wings is still just it's a great standalone issue of Alchemic. Um, The art is great. Um, the story is really good. It's a lot about the importance of life and lives, um, whether they be brief or long and kind of the interpretation of that. It's an excuse, as we talked about, for the artist to draw on actual skylines and buildings and parks in the real world and kind of, you know, take these two very fantastic people and put them in it um, versus collectors, which I really like the art and collectors, but it's it's kind of a different thing. So, I mean, I think collectors, I don't know where it would be in terms of all of the issues as a whole, but it definitely is not, it's definitely at least number two, if not number three, um, if I throw in everything from, uh, from before. And so obviously I'm not including sound of her wings in my doll's house summary here, as we talked about earlier in the issue, whether it should or shouldn't be. So, uh, then, Glenn, uh, there are a lot of additional characters that we get added in here, and as well as some characters who we've met before in Preludes and Nocturnes who make reappearances. We learn a little bit more about a couple of them. But uh, who is your favorite character who wasn't Dream? We'll, we'll take Dream off the table, although it may be that in both cases our favorite characters, even if Dream were on the table, would still not be Dream. But who, who's your favorite character in um, Doll's House? Well, this is going to surprise nobody. And and frankly, this is why I put myself first just to, to remove the burden of it, I suppose. Uh, look, it's 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 Gilbert. It's G.K. Chesterton. I, I love the real life G.K. Chesterton. I've been doing a lot of reading of Chesterton over the last three years since we started the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast, uh, and where reading Chesterton has been extremely important to, to what we do over there. Uh, but I even setting aside just my love of Chesterton and being thrilled that he's on the page here as a character, I think Gilbert, right? Thinking of just Gilbert, thinking of him as just Gilbert, I think he really works, right? That he is, uh, he is a chivalric hero, but but also a kind of nerdy chivalric hero, a kind of uh, uh, almost monk as chivalric hero here, right? Rather than being a, a paladin, a kind of knight in shining armor. He's really the heroic monk of a medieval saint's life, a medieval hagiography. And he finds himself in the middle here of something that really could be thought of and probably should be thought of as something of a horror story. And yet here's this holy warrior, right? This, uh, this, chivalric hero stepping in to do his best to save the day and to interact with all of these uh, genuine nightmares from a, a totally different place, right? That he's not... 
he's not meeting them in their own genre, I guess, is maybe the, the way to, to phrase it. And so in some ways, he represents part of the way that Gaiman is is dealing with genre in this story, right? And that he's here to represent, actually, I think, one of the stronger fantasy elements of of literature in the midst of this horror story, and especially if we're thinking about his role in collectors in in particular, uh, and, and also Lost Hearts as well. And I really love that. Uh, I also do want to say that I did my homework from Men of Good Fortune, and I really did go read Chesterton's biography of, of Cobbett. <laughs> this was actually something I read uh, uh, in December when I was uh, taking the train every day to, to visit Elizabeth in the, the hospital because she was stuck in there for a month before uh, we were able to uh, give birth to our, our, our son. Uh, and I was really grateful to have that sort of purposeful reading it kept me uh, kept me focused on uh on, on that uh but i don't really have anything to report back other than to say that it was beautifully written but it was not really a biography it was really much more of a hagiography much more of a saint's life which is to say that if you didn't already know about cobbett and his significance there's no way you can follow this book at all because chesterton is not interested in explaining what cobbett did that was so awesome he's what he's interested in doing is explaining the way in which Cobbett was awesome, or really what I'm trying to say is he's explaining what about Cobbett made him such an awesome person, but we don't really get a lot of explanation about what the awesome things that he did are. So you had to already go to it with that kind of material, but that's a very Chestertonian way of, of doing this. Almost all of the biographies that he writes are hagiographic. Also, most of them are actually about real saints. So, you know, that's just kind of the mode that he's doing things in. But I did promise to report back on that, and so I wanted to wanted to keep my promise there. But, uh, but Brent, who was uh, your favorite non-dream character? Well, my favorite non-dream character um, was also Gilbert. And in addition to everything you've said before, which I agree with, although I have not read almost any G.K. Chesterton, so uh, my enjoyment of that character has nothing to, to do with Chesterton. But everything else you've said about the way that he's depicted here um, and my vague understandings of Chesterton do help me appreciate a tiny fraction of uh, some of the um, relationship to uh, the real-world author. But there are three additional things that um, come to mind that I wanted to call out in addition to everything that you've mentioned with him. Uh, the first thing is Gilbert is also great because we get to see him in action mode fighting with and taking it to skinhead neo-Nazis. And anyone who takes it to skinhead neo-Nazis will always uh, get extra marks in my book. Uh, yeah. Additional thing is uh, we rarely see, even in comics, um, a depiction of anyone who is more heavy set in a heroic role. It's not the kind of thing you get. You usually get more things like Funland, in which you get, oh, well, there's something wrong with them, and maybe they're also a pervert. That And that connects to someone who is, you know, what would be viewed as overweight relative to you know, here where we get Gilbert, who it's just like, no, he's he's kind of spry enough to do what he needs to do. Um, and he it gets some of the heroic poses even by the end of it in Lost Hearts, even though he is uh, more of a heavy set uh, figure. Um, and then the third reason, which might be kind of one of the bigger ones for me, is um, I like the idea of a place that has a personality and also its own thinking. And that also then decides, you know, when dream has gone long enough, I'm just going to see what it's like to be a person. It's made very clear that this is not 
Chesterton, who, unlike Matthew, where like he was immortal and now he exists in the dreaming, Fiddler's Green slash, you know, Gilbert is not Chesterton. He is Fiddler's Green, who's decided to manifest as Chesterton to experience the world from that point of view, um, which I just, um, I love the idea that places have personalities. Um, I think it's particularly a good construct to have when you're thinking about writing about a place. If you're, you know, writing fiction, uh, for any number of forums to think about like, well, what is the personality of this space? But then to take it a step further and say, what if that personality also had agency and is able to do things like, what would it do? So I, I really kind of love Gilbert for the things you outlined as well as the, the three additions that I added. And Fiddler's Green is an awesome place. I would like to visit Fiddler's Green for sure. So yeah, Gilbert, I think there was really no surprise there that both of us there was really no surprise there that both of us picked Gilbert. But I guess the question is, is Gilbert our favorite character, favorite non-dream character so far? Last time in Preludes and Nocturnes, I had picked the the three women, the the, the fates, the the furies, the Hecatei, who do appear in the doll's house as well. And I will say that I prefer Gilbert to them. Gilbert is so far my favorite non-dream character uh, that we've met how, how about you and last time i'd picked scarecrow and uh, yeah gilbert i far prefer moving on then uh does gilbert appear in your favorite panel or is it something else uh, it is it is something else indeed. I have chosen from uh, Into the Night, and it's this panel with Alice in Wonderland in an Acropolis in Zelda's Dream, right? This is, I don't know, it's like a metaphor for my entire life, or at least my entire adolescence. Well, really, our entire adolescence, I suppose, right? Uh, but I just love this panel. It, it really does encapsulate all of the things that I go to Sandman for, or maybe many of the things, because Sandman, uh, there's a lot in the Sandman, so I go to it for a lot of things. But this, uh, and, but also in thinking about genre, right, and thinking about Sandman as both a, a horror comic and a fantasy comic, I mean, this panel is that, right? We've got a necropolis, that's the horror genre, but then we've got Alice in Wonderland, uh, like, superimposed on that, right? So it's a fantasy character navigating a horror story, and, and maybe that is the, the way that we should be thinking about the Sandman right now. Uh, so yeah, this is one that I just absolutely, absolutely love. But uh, but what was your favorite panel, Brent? So at this point, I need to assure the audience that we are not staging this at all. Um, <laughs> my favorite panel uh, is right above your favorite panel. Uh, and that is uh, Chantal's dream in which uh, Chantal yeah. is having a relationship with a sentence. Just one of those things, a chance meeting that grew into something important for both of them. Um, and I'm including uh, the panel being um, the character of Chantal holding onto the wall that has the sentence um, and holding a book as well. Um, um, and I just, I, I really love the art here and I really love the idea of it, particularly in like a dream logic kind of sense. Um, although I, I do have to admit that I maybe would appreciate it less if it weren't juxtaposed with the panel that you selected, Glenn, because I think that those two next to each other, particularly they, they make, they, they make the other one better than they otherwise would be that the whole is better than the sum of the parts in this case. So the layout of the page is just, it's great where they each get three panels and then they're kind of, you know, very much together in a unified paddle that they're in the middle of the page. But, um, that's my favorite panel. 
Yeah, it doesn't seem like either of us considered Into the Night for our favorite issue. I, I didn't really think about it for sure, but it may actually, just thinking about it now, it, it may actually be the issue here that makes the best use of comics as a, a, a visual medium. And, and perhaps that's why we have, we've both selected panels from that, that story. Uh, that'll be fun to, to revisit at some point as well. No, I think it does make a lot of good use of comic panels. I do want to note, because uh, we didn't talk about it when we discussed the issue, but in Tales in the Sand, another thing that kind of makes good use of the comic panels is the narration panel of the story that the uh, older man is telling the younger um, is almost all at the bottom third of the page. Um, and it's the panels above it is the story as if, you know, kind of like when you're holding a book in some ways where you're reading the story and then above that is where the actual story is. Um, or it's almost like it's word balloons of, of what the grandfather is saying it's just then depicted in pictures and not just in uh in images and so that doesn't stay uniformly throughout the issue but for much of the issue um it's kind of a great little device in which you can see the setup where the bottom is the people telling the story and the panels above it are the story that's being told yeah, and that panel was a contender. That was on my list. That was what I very seriously considered. Well, let's uh, let's talk favorite covers now, and I'll, I'll go first this time. And since we're talking about Tales in the Sand, I'm going to say my favorite cover was Tales in the Sand. And, and really, I will pick any of the versions, right? We talked about the, the variants when we, we covered that issue, but uh, I like them all. They've got this, this gorgeous landscape. Dream looking very different than we've seen him before, just like really cool spider hair, basically, just really awesome. And I love the print on the woman's dress as well. I mean, you know, it, it, the cover's got a bird on it too, right? And anything with a bird on it is is, is going to win. It's that, that weaver bird again. So uh, that was my favorite cover. Uh, what was yours? That was a strong contender for my favorite cover, but I actually went with um, part seven, the Lost Hearts cover, um, where we have Dream sitting on a leather couch. Um, and I just really <laughs> like kind of the three-dimensionality of what we're seeing in which, you know, there looks to be kind of flames behind him and we've got, you know, frames with not necessarily anything in them. And then we've got, again, um, the cathedral, which also could also be his throne room that we see in um, the first or second issue of the volume. And uh, I just really like the way that uh, Dave McKeon kind of composed this image and put all of these elements in. And I think it does a really good job of, of also setting you up for the story that's about to follow in which like dream is now finally a central person in the story. Um, <laughs> and also, that uh, all of these things kind of play out and, you know, things are kicking off, hence the fire in which, like, you know, it's dangerous um, and wild and things are happening. So I really enjoyed the final cover of the uh, volume. Well, and, uh, I don't want to psychoanalyze us, but this may say something about our, our differing personalities here that you, you have picked the, uh, uh, the really cool living room and I picked the really cool wilderness landscape i think that may, might actually be a way of summarizing us uh, in a in a nutshell there well we've just got one last thing that we want to do here in the in the podcast and uh that is to rank the volumes uh, we'll do this every wrap-up episode from here on out i'm you know not all that exciting when we've only got two but brent where do you rank the volumes how do you rank them is is doll's house your favorite or is preludes and nocturnes your favorite so far it, it's really hard because um, Doll's House, I think, is a lot cleaner and more unified of a volume. I think that uh, it 
shows better that, you know, Neil Gaiman has kind of found his footing as to the overall story he wants to tell. There's things he very much lays out in the prologue that then kind of, you know, themes that are returned to throughout in ways that we don't have in um, Preludes and Nocturnes. I mean, that being said, there are still some parts from Preludes and Nocturnes that I will, when I think about early Sandman, I will think about, you know, my favorite moments, which is still, and partially it's because of me enjoying characters that are from outside Sandman, but John Constantine, you know, singing, you know, Mr. Sandman, um, <laughs> and, you know, Martian Manhunter, I mentioned, you know, him with his Oreos, um, and Mr. Miracle. Um, and so I, I like those little bits and I like Scarecrow. And so I like the relationship and Preludes and Nocturnes to kind of the greater DC universe. Um, so it's hard for me because it's just like, do I like the thing that feels more like an anthology of beats that I like, or do I like the thing that's the more cohesive story as a whole? And I'm really torn still. And I was trying to have a decision about it. I think right now I'm going to give the edge edge to a doll's house. I don't know that younger Brent would have done that, but I think now I, I have a greater appreciation now that I'm, uh, I've read it so many times for some of the work that he's doing in having things, you know, mirrored throughout all of the issues and in tying all the things together and in still kind of having some almost anthology stories of like what's going on with Lita Hall other than, you know, the, the Jed connection has very little to do with all of the things that are going on with Rose, but we do also see m- more characters. And I think there's something to be said for the fact that, you know, our favorite character in this one is, you know, Gilbert. And while he's based on GK Chesterton, he is more kind of Neil's original character versus when we look at, you know, his borrowing of scarecrow or even the fates in the prior um, collection. So I think that the character work is being done better here. And I think that, I mean, I, particularly after, um, into the night, I think that we both have a lot better understanding and appreciation of, you know, Chantel and Zelda and Hal and Barbie, and even Ken in ways that we kind of don't like. Right. Um, and I think that that speaks volumes about how great this volume is. Um, but how do you rank them and what are your thoughts? Well, I had very much the same thought process that that you did here. And interestingly, we both, I think, rank at least one issue from Preludes and Nocturnes as the the, the best issue that we've had so far. But yet I came down on the, the, the same side of this that you did, that I, I think that the Doll's House was a better story arc and, and just a, a better volume on the whole. Uh, it is, it, it does seem like, it does seem like Gaiman and really the whole creative team had a better idea of what they were up to uh, this time. But also it, it expands the world quite a bit, right? It's, it's taking place on a, a larger stage. We're seeing maybe more of what the breadth of this world is going to be. I mean, I, I know that in Preludes and Nocturnes, we went to hell and so on, but it does feel like it's making its own stage as well, right? Setting Stepping aside from the DC Comics stuff and making its own speculative world. And I think that that's something that fans of the Sandman really love about it. It's certainly something I really love about it. And so it's great to, to see that here, right? That I appreciate the Sandman as this really expansive world, this broad stage, rather than the, the tightly focused narrative, uh, 
that we had in Preludes and Nocturnes. But it was actually tough for me to, to choose. And I actually did feel a little bit differently about it when we uh, hit the stop recording button, when we uh, d- when we hit the stop recording button at the end of Lost Hearts. It wasn't really until I went back and reread both volumes in preparation for this episode that I came down pretty hard on the, the side of, of Doll's House. Well, I think now that we have assessed and ranked just about everything that can be ranked and assessed here, and we, we've talked about themes and motifs, and we're, we're also looking ahead, uh, I think that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Heltz. Uh, so please join us on the forum. Let us know which was your favorite vol- volume, and let us know if there are other instance- incidences of hearts, uh, either the word or image the imagery of hearts uh, in Doll's House that um, are worth taking note of. Um and uh, are you reading more G.K. Chesterton as a result of having read Doll's House? <laughs> I hope so. I want an excuse to start a, a G.K. Chesterton podcast for sure. Uh, well, as is our custom, we're going to take a little break from the Sandman now that we have come to the end of a volume. And so next month, we're going to be back with Gaiman's poem, Cold Colors, uh, which you can find in Smoke and Mirrors. This is actually a show that we did live at PhilCon. Uh, and then after that, we're going to do Forbidden Brides of the Faceless Slaves in the Secret House of the Night of Desire, uh, which of course is uh, part of the text of my favorite panel here. Uh, we're also going to do the Gaiman episode of the TV show Babylon 5, which won a Patreon vote. And then we're going to do a bonus episode that was commissioned by a Patreon supporter, uh, in which we're going to cross streams with Elder Sign in order to cover only the end of the world again, which you can also find in Smoke and Mirrors. And so we'll get back to Sandman on July 8th with Calliope, which is uh, an issue that I'm really, really looking forward to. But until then, pleasant dreams. Pleasant dreams.